Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Harp. Bring. Excuse me while I harp on a bit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Took me nine episodes to get to that joke. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. Would you like to hear me play the lute? <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is our podcast in which we were, uh, we answer your emails. You send us emails to letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We read those emails and we read them on the air and answer them uh, for the benefit of all. Yeah. So if you have uh, questions about us or what we do or you want movie recommendations or yeah, you take issue with something that we said in one of our podcasts and you want to have a conversation about it... Um, the sky's the limit, really. You can do whatever you want. We try yeah, to read as many yeah. letters as we can. Um, yeah, and and we'll, and we do that thing, and we're we happy to hear from week. you. We like to hear. We like to get feedback. We like to get feedback from everybody. And we're slowly chipping away at our lar- large, large months-old back catalog. Yay! We're we're caught up. We're I think we're out of September by now. And it's only, it's only like early to mid December no, right still, now. It's as, still as we record this. We're so, officially caught up to the last quarter of the year. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and why don't we start? Yes. Uh, here's a letter. From, <laughs> and speaking of taking issue, this first letter is something that takes issue with something I said. What did you um, know? This is from Hayden. Um, <clears throat> Hello, young listener here. Uh, and I and while I love you guys, a part for, a part of me was very annoyed hmm. when Whitney said current teenagers aren't angry and are more sensitive. <laughs> This is in response to something I said when we talked about Deadly Class in our Cancel Too Soon episode mm. about Deadly Class. And I think it's um, fair to say it was it was a generalization. It, w- it was most certainly a generalization. And um, it's also from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. I'm not a teenager. I'm a middle-aged man. Uh, but I was trying to uh, articulate something that uh, about punk rock that I was not seeing in the current teen mm. ethos. You see, um, back when Whitney was a child and he had mm. to walk... 80 miles in the snow both ways just to get to his adolescence concert. Uh, you know, he mm. uh, he's old. Anyway, let's uh, read the rest I, of the letter. I live in Los Angeles. It was sunny. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, teenagers aren't angry and more sensitive. We are indeed angry. We are very vocal about it. People at my high school are very upfront with their problems with Trump and the economy. Yes, we're not thrashing around and giving everyone the middle finger, but our anger is more in our humor and our timelines. The phrase... Okay, boomer is not just a funny meme, but it comes from a serious place of anger. Mm-hmm. Just because we're more sensitive to other people doesn't negate our anger, and the fact that you suggested that really rubbed me the wrong way. You, it uh, really sho- it really shows that you're 41. <laughs> and you Sorry. know what? I can't argue with any of that. No, we got I, a little old, uh, didn't uh, we? I, I, uh, this is a middle-aged man kind of ranting. Um, I'm in no way expecting you to know the ins and outs of my generation. Like, how would, how would you expect me to know the ins and outs of yours? But you're so off base, I felt the need to correct you. Well, consider me corrected. Thank you, Hayden. Um, thank you, Hayden. And, uh, and he brings up a really excellent point, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, when punk rock came around... There, there it, was no social media. Well, not even that there was no... I'm, I'm thinking about, let's just go back in time All right. to when punk rock started becoming it's like, like this voice of a, of a generation, yeah, late 70s, early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. Okay. Before we had punk rock... There was no punk rock to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there were people okay, of, yeah. in the, of the previous generation who were just saying, oh, all these kids, they're just caterwauling with this punk rock. What they really should be doing is what we did in the 60s, mm, which for is, example. Yeah, peace, love, and take, take acid and yeah. not, wear, not wear underpants and roll around in the mud at Woodstock. Yeah. The, the, the new generation should have new ways of doing things and new ways yeah, to express absolutely. themselves. And just because it doesn't look like it did in our generation doesn't mean mm. it's any less... Um, 
angry. And in fact, one thing I'm loving seeing, and we didn't, we were kind of just talking about the show. We really weren't getting into a larger social point. Mm-hmm. But to get into it now, I'm loving the way that a lot of young people are using social media and uh, all of the tools at their disposal to not just be angry, but to be productive. Yeah, to really and, rally. Yeah, I, I was, rally, I was to organize, this, the, um, to protest. The, the, the idea of using social media to get to organize into protest is kind of a hallmark of this generation, yeah. which is something we didn't have uh, or, you know, the previous generations didn't have. And we're seeing that like in, in the wake of shootings or political rallies, mm-hmm. the whole uh, women's March, like all of this is younger people using social media to organize. Yeah. And, uh, that is unbelievably admirable. Mm-hmm. It's not something, uh, we had the wherewithal or have the wherewithal to do anymore. And it's, Hayden, it's all thanks to you. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. And, yeah, like, and, and, and we're uh, starting to see like younger politicians uh-huh. start being able uh, to, um, you know, to, to respond and react to situations and crises that older politicians are not. I'm thinking specifically of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, there you go. Who, again, we're not to get political, but she, as someone who is younger and who grew mm. up with social media... Who's and young, is, younger than us. Young, yeah. Way younger than us. And she is... And, and I respect the hell out of her. I think she's a, she's doing a great job. But mm. regardless of, of where you lie in the political spectrum, the way that she diffuses rhetoric mm. on social media... Is just a <laughs> wow. Like older politicians don't know how to do that. Yeah, she can just yeah. take something that in anyone else would be a news cycle bullshit, mm. put out one tweet that is just new generation. Who dis? Yeah, yeah basically. Like, <laughs> like she's so damn good at it mm. without being like condescending or with I mean, unnecessarily condescending. No, maybe a little condescending, but condescending but, to the right people. Yeah, but yeah. like without just sort of ignoring the issue, she can get to the heart of it and she can speak to that. In a way that you and I can understand better, and mm. even people even younger than us can understand even better than us. Yeah, yeah. I'm loving how the rhetoric is changing yeah. and how people who are growing up in the system have new ways to fight the system that we don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, the, the, it was just announced today or yesterday that they, in Finland, they announced a new, they elected a new prime minister. Mm-hmm. She's 36. Wow. It's younger than you or I, and that's, I think she, I think she's the youngest person to ever hold that position. So that's probably awesome. true. The, the, uh, is, is Kennedy still the youngest president we've ever had? He's like forty three so, or something. something. Like I think he might. I'm gonna look this up. Hang on. Cause, maybe cause maybe like an, an, like Obama. I think is really close, but yeah. Who was the youngest president <laughs> of the United? I know you have, you have to be thirty five. Theodore Roosevelt at forty two. Was the youngest. He was the yeah. youngest. And 35 is the la- the age limit. You and if you actually look at what Theodore Roosevelt did, Theodore Roosevelt did a lot of shit, by the way, but he was a very productive president. That's he for sure. He got shit done. Like, well, he, for better or worse, he hmm. got shit done. <laughs> Spanish-American War. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, he signed tons of legislation. He was very angry, and he really wanted to get things changed, and I think that youthful vitality helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I, my, my particular beef with Deadly Class is... Which, by no, the way, if you didn't listen to Cancel Too Soon, was a show on the Sci-Fi Network. It, it but, took, yeah, it took place in 1987. It was about a lot of the punk rock ethos being sort of channeled into this fantasy show about a high school for would-be assassins. Yeah. Uh, not a very good show at the end of the day. But uh, <laughs> uh, my complaint is that not necessarily that teenagers these days aren't angry, because I, I know you are, and I've been corrected, and I apologize for misspeaking, and... Uh, but uh, it comes from a general frustration I, I have about 
how there doesn't really seem to be a counterculture the same way there was in the 80s and 90s when I was younger. Now, there might be. Yeah. I'm just not privy to y- it. You might be part of the but, culture right yeah, now. I'm, right, I'm just culture, so it. I don't get to see the counterculture. But here's what I think actually happened. There is a counterculture right now, and it's that alt-right conspiracy shit. Ugh, like they're they're thought. the silent voice that's kind of fighting to be heard right now. Oh, we need okay. And so we need a counter counter. We need we need a counter to that is what's okay. going on. And what's happening is the the pop culture is actually trying to fight that, which is something I've never seen before. It is odd that the yeah. pop culture is a little bit more on the side of right. Yeah. Than the counter. That's an Where, whereas the counter the counterculture was trying to tear down the big machine because we were you know. These big businesses were all very wicked, and everything everything was corrupt. So we needed something angry like punk rock to attack it. Like we're looking, a lot of people are looking at mm. the mainstream culture and how it is trying to. It, it's, it's slow. To, to, it's, it's slow to do it's it. Slow, and but it's, some... it's trying really hard to validate and incorporate a lot of people now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's I find it so weird that people are looking to Disney of all things as kind of a, a cultural barometer as to what's acceptable in our popular culture now. Yeah. It's like, we need to have a gay character in a Star Wars film. Well, I mean, the, if you want a queer film, look around. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. But, yeah. But it's but like, until, we're, we're, until, until, we get as, until it gets yeah. as far as Star Wars, it's not considered like acceptable in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And well, that it's, is it's su- a matter yeah. of how, what's, what is the market penetration of something like Star Wars? Mm-hmm. It reaches the most people. Exactly. So that so that's still people, feels yeah. like certain people are unwelcome within that franchise. Uh-huh. And the, it's still that's the mainstream ethos in a lot of ways. It doesn't get a lot more mainstream than Disney nowadays. Yeah, yeah. it really doesn't. Anyway, so, there's a long, complicated conversation, and we're only equipped to but, talk about but, some uh, of it. But, but Hayden, thank you for writing in. Thank, thank you, you for for taking me to task because I, I enjoy when I am. Yeah, uh, we're I, all t- I need I need to be. Need we're all to, trying to be I'm, better people. We're all trying to avoid making the mistakes. Yeah, in the past. I'm, I don't want to stagnate as an old man. I want to be continually challenged. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from E. Just the letter E. Ooh, from Sweden. Hey, hello, E from Sweden. Uh, hi, Benjamin Whitney. Uh, I've been listening through your film reviews and really like your review on Klaus. Oh, thank you. I watched it with my dad, and he really liked it, which uh, which is pretty big since he can be difficult to impress. Hmm. I also really enjoy your mentions of Hallmark Christmas movies and the way Whitney is so not into it. Yeah, it always makes me laugh. Sorry. Well, I'm glad somebody can enjoy my misery. Uh, <laughs> Now, speaking of romantic films, uh, when it comes to films with romantic plots or subplots, do you have any specific tropes that you really like and really dislike? Mm. I'm a sucker for supportive relationships, The Princess and the Frog, where the prince supports Tiana's dream to open a restaurant. That's the best. Uh, Supportive friends who rally and want the couple to get together, for example, Love, Simon, and a fun or emotional love confessions like Crazy Rich Asians. Sure. However, I hate the trope. Where they have a woman quit her job to be with a man. Uh, it's not always portrayed as her leaving her job specifically for the guy, but so many fans end with women, work plus man equals happy, that it's hard not to draw conclusions from that. It's especially annoying when the woman has a really good job that she probably worked really hard for, and she gets constantly criticized for being too obsessed with her job, and it's seen as something negative that she has come so far in her career. Example, what happens in Vegas. I haven't seen what happens in I didn't Vegas. I see also, I hate relationships where the guy kidnaps and or is abusive, physically or verbally, with the woman, and they still end up falling in love. Yeah, that's a thing. Uh, th- those are usually those types of movies where there's like a kidnapping or a crime or sort of portrayed as dark comedies. But yeah, it's usually just a lot of abuse, what you're yeah. seeing. And, it, and you don't really believe that that's yeah. a happy ending if they end up yeah. together. Uh, it's insane how often this happens in films, especially when you add verbally abusive, how many films don't have the guy be an outright mean asshole to the woman that later mm. falls in love with him. Yeah. Uh, going back around to Christmas... 
because I want to end this on a high note, do you have any favorite Christmas films? Oh. Uh, I'm not necessarily asking for the best, but most well-made movies of all times. Just films that really put you in a holiday mood. That are great to drink hot chocolate and cuddle up with loved ones while watching. Sort of films that make you warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> Home Alone is usually my choice. But I think I'll be adding Klaus after this year. Uh, my film is The Human Centipede 3. Final now, sequence. Shut up. Cuddle uh, up. Watch the most disgusting thing ever made. Okay. Uh, uh, to answer your last question first. Mm-hmm. Um, on we Every uh, month we just added a new show on the Critically Acclaimed Network called The Iron List. Mm-hmm. And on The Iron List we take requests from Patreon. There's a vote on Patreon. Everyone who's a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network mm-hmm. gets to contribute their vote for The Iron List. And this month uh, they picked the best Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. So we will be doing a whole list of the best Christmas movies. Yeah. Our picks, Whitney's top ten, my top ten, whatever we think qualifies, and that can be anything from warm and cuddly to horror movies. It can be anything at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, real fast, let's give one quick recommendation of a great Christmas movie that doesn't get a lot of love. A uh, great Christmas movie that doesn't get a lot of love. You know what? I, I'm always fond of like the, the non-conventional Christmas movies, yeah. the ones that take place around Christmas. Yeah. Um, Shane Black's films all take place at Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is now considered kind of a neo-Christmas classic. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the one I was I was working on my iron list, and I don't think this is going to make it, but it's mm. going to become real close, uh, is a film called The Man Who Came to Dinner. Okay. A really, really wonderful comedy uh, starring Betty Davis and Monty Woolley. And um, Monty Woolley plays a, a famous... Uh, a famous wit he's based on Alexander Wolcott mm. uh, who is visiting like a small town for the holidays doing a tour or whatever when he slips on someone's porch and he becomes incapacitated and he can't leave the house for the entire holiday season and he's an a-hole <laughs> and he's just this entitled mm. jerk mm. and he's always on the phone long distance to Eleanor Roosevelt and he's not like paying anyone bills it's hilarious it's really funny and it's not talked about enough Okay. So it's probably not going to make the list. It might, but it's probably not going to make my final list, and I can, I'm glad I can mention it now. Right. Regarding your other question about romantic mm. movie tropes, of which there mm. are tons. Yeah. Almost every movie, and I mean this, almost every movie has some kind of romantic plot or subplot. So we run through these storylines constantly, and mm. we've run into a lot of cliches and tropes. Yeah. Re- remember when... when um the Black Widow and Hulk like had a weird sort of semi-romance in those Avengers movies. I do remember that. It came out of nowhere and it didn't go anywhere. It was very weird. Yeah. Yeah, I think they thought it was going to go somewhere and they never got around to it. And then there was like the last shot in that movie was like the Hulk looking sad and the, <laughs> in the <laughs> cockpit of a super jet. It was like the dumbest crap. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's like it's supposed to be the sad moment of the Hulk flying away, but it's like the silliest thing. It's really weird to me because like love is an important part mm. of a lot of people's lives. Some people never find their soulmate or someone to marry or whatever, but most people are looking, most people have tried, and a lot of people date. A lot of time goes by in our lives in which our love lives are not active or relevant to what's going on. Mm -hmm. Just because you're in the middle of unraveling a serious government conspiracy Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you must also have recently started dating someone who you're going to marry in six months. (laughs) Like It's weird for me how we always have to shoehorn that in Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I really liked that movie, Fighting With My Family. This isn't, like, the big reason. But mm-hmm. one of the things I really liked about it was it's all about this uh, young woman who uh, rose from obscurity to become uh, a wrestling champion in the WCW. Mm-hmm. Along the way, she does not fall in love with anyone. There's no taking <laughs> nothing. She's worried about her job yeah, right man. now. That's it. And you don't miss it. 
It wasn't until the movie was over I was like, wait a minute. There was no romantic subplot. This was great. There was a... This is such a, a stupid example, but in Sinister 2, <laughs> uh, there was, uh, you know, it, it's about, you know, the new family has a bagul problem, a character <laughs> from the previous movie comes in, uh, the, the young man from the previous movie, the young cop. Uh, James Ranzone. James Ranzone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great actor. He, and he has, he has the, the best line in the movie. It's like, this is all ghosts. You don't really believe in this. And James Ranzone says, yes, 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 I believe in all of this. This is all scary. <laughs> Sinister the, one is so damn yeah, good. Sinister is really good. Sinister two less so. But, I didn't uh, see Sinister two. I need to get around to it. But he, uh, James Ransone shows up to the single mom and says, "Yeah, you got yourself a ghoul problem, and they, we have to deal with this together." And they start to regard one another and respect one another. And then there's a scene late in the movie where they actually kiss. And I realized that it's so rare that we see movies about adult men and women who just have a really good friendship. Yeah. And I was enjoying their friendship, and I'd like to see a movie about how a friendship grows. That's not... We never see movies about friendships. Like the, if, not, if, not not mixed uh, uh, gender definitely, And definitely yeah. not mixed gender friendships. We see stuff like groups of friends. Like, all the Stephen King movies are technically about friendship, but in that kind of abstract way. It's mm. not about the details and the foibles of the characters. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, Captain Underpants is one of the few movies that actually gets, like, little kid friendship right. It's true. And how, how dramatic that feels. It's very true. Um, I, that's I a wish great movie. I, it's way better than a movie called Captain Underpants ought to be. But, uh, yeah, I, that's something that I kind of miss in romantic films, is just a good friendship. And I would yeah. love to see a movie that is shaped like a romance, but isn't about actual romance. Well, I, I love you, yeah. man. Well, I love you, but I love you, man, is... is it's almost like a gimmick, you know? They're trying to make it look it like a, a romantic... It works fine, but um, yeah, Fair enough. Um, uh, let's see, other uh, other tropes that bug me in romantic comedies... My biggest trope that or, bugs me... There's a lot of little ones. Actually, yeah. if you wanted just to see a great compilation of every romantic movie trope ever, mm. watch a comedy called They Came Together. Oh, that is a funny movie. If you love romantic movies, oh, so and funny. if you can appreciate them even when they're cliched and hackneyed... Mm. Uh, they Came Together is a spot-on, mm. merciless, but very caring... Like, they love the genre, clearly. Mm. It's a very great satire of romantic comedies. And just every scene mm. is just calling out all the tropes and how mm. absurd they are. There's a great bit at the beginning because, like, you need to have these... The characters uh, meet and they, they're instantly sort of antagonistic to each other. But eventually, over the course of the film, they have to find something they have in common. Mm. Now, you want it to be something kind of fun and quirky to show they have personality. So in the case of They Came Together, they find out that they're the only two people that each other knows who like fiction books. <laughs> That's right. They They're meet, the only two people in the bookstore book who are looking store. at fiction. Oh, I love fiction too. It's great. Okay, well, like, let us tell you the story. You see, it takes place in New York. It's almost like New York is another character in the film. There's a bit where they're on a date, and yeah. um, uh, it's Amy Poehler and uh, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, yeah. And Amy Poehler just says something just out of the blue, just giving anecdotes, and he was like, hey, yeah, listen, if anything ever really bad happens and I have to, like, flee a wedding or whatever, just know that I would always go to this one dock where my dad took me when I was a little girl. Paul Rudd's like, that's an interesting thing to say. He's like, yeah, it might be important later. <laughs> because there's always that one moment. I'm like, I know where she went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, though, the most annoying trope, this is a trope that I think you cannot have a romantic movie with this trope, unless it is broadly farcical, mm. and everyone's lying to everyone, and everyone's kind of a shitty person, but if your entire romantic story is based on one person deceiving the other for any meaningful length of time... Mm, like pre pretending to be... Uh 
there's always a pretending to be I'm, I'm pretending yeah. to be a lawyer. I'm mm. pretending to be uh, an, an expert guitar player. I'm pretending mm. uh, I, I only dated you because of a bet. That kind yeah, of thing. But yeah. then I really fell in love. That relationship is built on deception, doubt, and lies. Right, well, there's no coming back from that. I, you might try to make it work, but yeah. they're going to break up within a month. Well, you you say that, but I remember uh, one of those like date her on a bet kind of movies or date him on a bet kind of movies. And uh, Roger Ebert brought up an interesting point that mm. in these movies, there's always a lot of genuine chemistry between those two characters. So even though their relationship is predicated on a lie or a deception, yeah, uh, when it comes out, Roger Ebert always wanted the moment saying. Okay, you lied to me. That's an issue. We'll talk about it. But clearly we have a lot of chemistry, so why don't we work on this? Here's what would bother me about that situation. Hmm. Clearly you can lie to me about fundamentally important things, and Hmm. I will not notice. Okay. That's a problem. Well, but... That's a problem. You don't know what your what your spouse or your partner is lying to you about at any given no, no, time. They have their own private a, life. Of course, private yeah. life is fine. And it's the difference between saying, you look fine, and when in actuality, these things clash, and you just don't care. Or, like, they're little things. That's fine. Mm. But when it comes right down to it, I don't want my partner, like, actually, like, actually, I have a whole secret life in which I kill people for fun. All right. I think that's a fundamental problem. Like, at least something we need to address if I don't know about it. Okay. Because that's a huge part of your life that you're not only keeping from me, but you're comfortable keeping from me. Mm-hmm. And which you are able to keep from me from such an extended period because I am too trusting. Hmm. So I'm going to build a complex now about being less trusting. And as a result, the relationship is doomed. Mm-hmm. I don't buy it. I, there might be an exception. Again, they're really broad, silly, Preston yeah, well, Sturgisy farces uh-huh. in which I can work with it. But if it's supposed to be plausible, uh-huh. I never buy it. Well... But we just reviewed a film where it was about a very deeply romantic relationship that was predicated on deception. Meaningful length of time. They were she lied to her for a couple of days. Oh, okay. There's a couple of days, and then they came clean. So I'm you're, talking so you're about. Saying there's like a grace period. I think for there's this a deception. grace. I okay. think there's a grace period. Look, listen. Mm. When a lot of people, when you're dating someone, you're not so much dating them. You're dating the representative for a little while. Everyone's putting their best foot forward. Mm. So there's a little bit like I'm not showing you the real me. In this case, she was hired to do a job. Within a couple of days, she was like, I can't do this lie. Mm. So she tells her the truth, and then they connect. Okay. But it's not like they were they knew each other and were dating for six months based on this lie. Okay. That's a problem. So mm. I said meaningful length of time. Okay. You know, like... I, I, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say the grace period starts eventually. Like, let's say the, the relationship starts on a lie, and they end up falling in love and getting married, and they're married for 20 years, and then it comes out that at the very start they were lying, but they've been married for 20 years at this point. Again, so I, I think at, the, at that point you've gotten their genuine are, self again. Are you living a lie, or did you just overstate how much mm. you like brownies? Okay. Like, listen, I know I said I like brownies. I don't actually like brownies, but you were really into mm. brownies, and that was mm. the only way to keep hanging out with you that night. Yeah. That's not living a lie. Mm. Okay, that's just engineering an excuse to hang out with someone. I'm talking about pretending to be someone you're not. Actually, I'm an undercover CIA agent. <laughs> I don't buy it. You're not going to end up with that person. I don't care if your feelings are true. They're fe- they don't know their feelings because they've never met you. Mm. They do not know who you are. They might have a nice rapport with you, but I have a nice rapport with a lot of people, and that doesn't mean I should marry them. Okay. So, anyway. That this is going more toward movies, by the way, not actual romance. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. we'd never... Yeah. Uh, Although I do think deception is bad in actual yeah, romance, but, but yeah. But you know, your romance is your romance, so I'm not, I'm not going to dictate rules on how people date. Just no, of course, what no. we're sick of in movies. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Jake. 
Hi, Jake. Hi, Jake. Uh, hello, gentlemen. I recently watched 2010's remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I saw it nine years ago in theaters and didn't care for it. Mm, few did. Uh, but I rewatched it, and it wasn't as bad as I remembered it. Now, I say this keeping in mind 1984's original version is superior, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion. Going back and reading reviews and watching early YouTube reviews, most of them brought up the point that the movie is joyless, and they were very, uh, very uncomfortable with the aspects of pedophilia. Uh, while, of course, it is not... the not a subject at the top of the conversation starter. The origins of Freddy Krueger are that. It's yeah. like people forgot where the character started and only thought of him as a horror comedian as he was in most of the Nightmare sequels. It was always weird when they did that shift. Because mm. even, even they never really talked about Mm. The idea that maybe he was more than a child killer. Child killer is enough yeah, yeah. to not make him funny. <laughs> uh, the original 1980 form is dark and scary about a child molesting murderer. It's, yeah, the, the molesting part is not explicit in the 1984 no, film. No, it's more subtextual, yeah. but it's there. It's clearly there. Yeah. Uh, while I concede that uh, Robert England portrays the character in a better way, and the aspects of what happened to the kids is not harped on, in the remake, the aspects of what Kruger did to the kids is very prominent, just as it, as Jackie Earl Haley is as an actor. His version doesn't seem to stack up. Uh, do you think this movie was trashed critically and by audiences due to how uncomfortable it was and how they got used to the Freddy Krueger character being lighter and not so heavy? Uh, I'm going to mm. say right now, mm-hmm. um, there are things in that 2010 version that are not bad. I think it's shot very creepily. I think it's good cinematography overall. I think Jack Earl Haley is actually a pretty good follow-up to Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. His Freddy Krueger is fine. I don't like the makeup they gave him. I don't think it's as distinctive or sharp. Mm. It's maybe more plausible, but yeah, they, he's in a they, dream. They, I don't they, care if it's plausible. They tried to give him yeah, like more realistic yeah. uh, makeup. Yeah, but, but that's neither here nor there. And if that was my biggest problem with the film, it would be a classic. Um, my issue with the film isn't that they doubled down on that element of extreme darkness. Mm. I'm actually fine with that, and I actually kind of like the way that they attempt to treat Freddy's insidious quality, like the way that he gets inside your dreams, as recovered memories trying to break out. Yeah. yeah. I actually think that was a smart play. I think that was mm. scary. I think it was really grim. Oh. But I do think that Freddy Krueger started from a place of grimness, and it's perfectly okay yeah. to go back to that. Well, look, My problem with the movie mm. is that it is shabbily written, it is shoddily edited, it's a lot of confusion to it. I interviewed one of the, I think he was, he might have been the only credited screenwriter, Eric Heiserer, okay. who also uh, went on to get an Oscar nomination for writing the excellent sci-fi film Arrival. Mm. Um, and one of the things he was saying, this is on a podcast, this is all fine, but... Um, he was talking about how there was supposed to be dialogue at the end between uh, Rooney Mara and Kyle Gullner's character. And this was after they knew all the things that they knew. And mm. they'd built more of a relationship together after being estranged. And because there was an earlier scene with their characters where they didn't have a lot of dialogue, the filmmakers just took that dialogue from the end oh, and put no. it in the beginning. So it, it doesn't have the same heft anymore. It doesn't have the same heft and it doesn't even make sense. They're not there yet. So this was a very haphazard production in a lot of ways, and my problem with the movie is mostly that it feels haphazard. It doesn't feel complete. It feels like it got screwed with. Mm-hmm. There's some good bits. I really like the idea of micro naps. Like the I, idea- I, did, I didn't like that. I was at fine all. with that. I thought it was a fun little I, I, know, I know micro naps are a thing. Like yeah. people can take micro naps. They fall asleep just sort of unexpectedly, and then are back in consciousness in yeah. a moment. The problem with that is if somebody is falling asleep and they don't know they're falling asleep. And Freddy can just show up anywhere at any time. I think it, like it, kind of breaks down a lot of the rules of no, this think, universe. Just Freddy will show up at any point. If Freddy is there, mm. clearly they're dreaming at that yeah. point. I think that rule is clear. I just like the bit where they're like 
in and out of consciousness, and Freddy keeps popping up and then disappearing and then popping. Up. I thought that was a nice little sequence. No, oh, not right. There's a good sequence in there. Um, my issue isn't that they tried to take some uh, heavy predator-type material and put it in what is essentially a fantasy film. My issue is that it doesn't seem to know a lot about uh, the psychology of predators and victims. It, That's true. It, it gets it all completely wrong, and I think a lot of the audiences, yeah, t- to your point, uh, were that we're kind of used to uh, Freddy Krueger being part of this a little bit more of an exploitative genre mm-hmm. where we're here broadly to just, entertaining yeah like a little more broadly entertaining a little sillier and that kind of weight and creepiness is not something you're looking for in this type of a horror movie they're trying to turn the, a Nightmare on Elm Street into something a little more adult and harder edged but they didn't go far enough with it because mm-hmm. they weren't really looking into the actual psychology of what was going on Are they, yeah um, that's why I think they're mm-hmm. good ideas and they're good bits yeah, so but I don't think it comes together very well. Yeah, and I, turn, if, turn, if, if, if ever gear. it did, I think they screwed with it too. Yeah, much. Turning this dream monster into the ghost of the man who is victimizing you is a, actually a pretty great idea. Yeah. Um, but I think it needed to be handled in a much more mature fashion. They overshoot it. They mm-hmm. tr- they try to make it look kind of spooky, scary, haunted, housey. Freddy Krueger is uh, really kind of like, insidiously warm, the way a lot of Predators are in some scenes, but then he's just sort of a, a killer monster in others. Do you know what I mean? So, it's choppy. It's inconsistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like there was a specific <clears throat> game plan that they stuck to, mm-hmm. which, again, is a shame, because I do think there are bits and pieces of good stuff in there. Um, I don't think it's a good movie. I would actually argue it's probably the worst Freddy Krueger movie, um, which is saying something. There's a couple yeah. of stinkers in there. But... Um, I, I think that's fair to say, because people reviewed the film and said mm. what their problem was. Some people just like Freddy Krueger a certain way. Mm. Some people just like Jason as a zombie. Yeah. Some people just like Jason when he's not a zombie. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a personal preference. I think if the movie was great, in spite of that, there would have been more rallying behind it at the time, at least within the horror community. Because uh-huh. the horror community is a lot more forgiving than mainstream film critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, who don't immerse themselves in the genre and get familiar with all the different kind of levels and subgenres that horror can provide. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I find a lot of mainstream critics sort of don't understand what makes certain horror movies work. They yeah. understand very clearly what makes some horror movies work, but a lot of the other ones, the sort of weirder, challenging, exploitative, strange, they don't know what's good or bad. They just know whether or not they like it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, w- which I realize sounds like the same thing, but anyway. Mm. Um, I think that there are a few people who just have a preference in, with Nightmare, for, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm-mm. but I don't think this is a case of there's a classic that got underappreciated. Yeah. I think maybe it's not as bad as we, as we remember. That's fair. I revisited it a couple of years ago. Didn't care for it still. Um, but I don't think, personally, I don't think this is a good one. However... What I do find with a lot of, especially genre films, horror films, action movies, um, especially if they're part of a franchise that people revisit uh-huh. repeatedly, is um, after the initial shock of getting the movie uh-huh. wears off and, oh, it's not what I expected or it's not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you just sort of accept that the thing exists. Mm-hmm. Then you revisit it and knowing what you're going to get in the first place, you might be more prepared to meet the thing halfway. Yeah. To, to acknowledge that it works in its own way 
And maybe it's not what you were looking for. Maybe it's not what you wanted. But maybe you've grown a little bit. Maybe it is what you want now. Or maybe this is more your taste now than it used to be. And now all of a sudden you like Alien 3, which got really trounced by a lot of critics when it came out. Mm -hmm. Or you really like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which critics and even horror fans were really against for a long amount of time until people started really decoding it as Mm -hmm. as a queer film. Yeah. Um, so maybe there, there, over- there, was, there was a time when audiences looked at a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge and didn't see the queerness. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Like maybe the biggest blind spot. It's really, really <laughs> odd. Um, so again, maybe over time people will be kind to this one. Personally, I don't think I'm likely to be one of those. Yeah. Well, I don't I, think it I, works. I, I haven't revisited it. I've only seen the film once and, mm-hmm. you know, I have just my, the issues I, I listed with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is one waiting to be rediscovered. Yeah. I don't think it's just like too weird for its own good or the ideas were too arch. I, I think it's just sloppy filmmaking. But it, it's a major franchise mm. and we live in a DECA mm. system, so people will surely revisit it for um, the 10-year anniversary. Maybe people mm. will be kinder now. I don't know. Wes Craven's estate is currently looking for pitches. I know. I have ideas and I don't know who to contact. <laughs> I got my got. <laughs> I got my treatments all written up and ready to go. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it. But John Squires over at Bloody Disgusting mm-hmm. like mentioned in a tweet a really great idea for how to bring Robert mm-hmm. Englund back for one more film uh-huh. and then continue the franchise without him. Okay. Like, and I was like, ooh, that's good. I wish I'd thought of that. There's so many good ideas. Mm-hmm. Rolling around for all of these franchises because these are ever these are boogeymen we all share, yeah, and, and we all project our own fears and insecurities and anxieties onto them, and so people are going to get something a little different out of Freddy depending on who you talk yeah, to, I, and just find the right person. There's tons feel, of great ideas. I feel like Freddy, Freddy, and and Pinhead, like the Hellraiser mythos, mm-hmm. are are large enough mythologies that we're finally ready to let them break out of their original franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, three different actors have played Pinhead now, and two have played Freddy. Um, and I think those characters in particular, as opposed to Jason and Michael Myers, who are essentially just slashers, they don't have yeah. a lot of personality unto themselves, True. Uh, are ready to go the Dracula route, where we can just have a Freddy Krueger movie that doesn't connect to any of the other movies. Because we know the concept, it's a good idea, we know it started in 1984, I think it's just old enough that we can have an, an independent Freddy like series of movies just for Freddy is used however you like. I, and well, was that the TV series? Well, the TV series was an anthology show. He was the host. But oh, he was the host. Yeah, it wasn't like he, he was, was killing he everybody. No, everybody. he wasn't in the story. I barely yeah. remember that show. Yeah, Fre- um, Freddy's Nightmares was an anthology. But regardless, series. yeah, you got a boogeyman who kills you in your sleep. Have him kill a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I don't need him to all connect. I don't need to learn more about him with every yeah, single I, I, movie. Find out he had kids. I don't care about his kids. It's a little frustrating that you know we're going back to Halloween and we're essentially just going back to Halloween. we're trying to remake Halloween over and over and over again. I really wanted my my pitch for yeah. Halloween. I still think it would have been good. Um, was instead and bear in mind, I actually like David Gordon Green's movie. I think it's pretty mm. damn good. It's not amazing, it's, but I like it. I think it's it's a it's a really accurate cover song. Without any changes in order, instrumentation. The original song was great. They're mm-hmm. going to do a cover. The song is still great. But why did you bother if you're not going to change it a little bit? Listen, I, every once in a while, you do a sequel or a reboot or whatever that's kind of close to the original just to remind you why the original worked in the first place and sort of reset the franchise and now we can go in a different direction. I, I don't like that we have to do that in this era of home video and streaming when but it's pe- all available. But people but, yeah. want one for their for themselves. People want their own version of you, it. They have the original I now. know, but it's that's not, not lost. But that's a 70s movie. It's a little different now. People want their own version of it. I'm not against the idea. All right. My, my my thing is this. My pitch for a new Halloween movie mm. 
was everything that happened in the previous movies is hearsay. Okay. Like, the only thing we know for a fact Mm -hmm. is that every Halloween in Haddonfield, someone dies or goes missing. Okay. That's it. Well, Not like necessarily at least one person, at least one person and maybe it's a coincidence, whatever. But all of these years, the specter of the initial spree, that part is mm. canon. That part everyone knows happened. All right. The initial, so he, he broke it. Even the original movie, the original movie did, did take place. The original movie definitely took place. But right. even then, all we really know are the nuts and bolts facts of the case. Guy Ooh. broke out of an institution, killed some people. They never caught him. That's it. I, I, I no, think, hang on. Right. Here's, my, here's my premise. All right. The present day. And now, in my new movie, it's it's not called Halloween, it's Mm. called Haddonfield. Mm. We're just, it's like Nashville, but as everyone is preparing for Halloween, and we're just seeing how this town that lives under this cloud of fear every Halloween, and teenagers are trying to fight against it or whatever, and just, we're getting to know the entire town as they try to deal with this boogeyman who may or may not attack every single year, and this year, he most definitely does. He does. He does. But right. we don't know if it's Michael Myers or just some other copycat in a mask. Right. We don't know any of that. It's pure mystery. We just know there is someone killing people. Mm. But we may never, that guy may never be caught. This might be just a thing where he kills some people and then vanishes again. Mm. It's just keep the idea of him as an urban legend alive. Okay. And I thought, and then just make it up story about how this scar tissue <laughs> has affected this town. Because but, if you ever lived in a town where some real horrible, brutal tragedy happened, mm-hmm. it lingers for a really long time in ways that you can't even anticipate. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it would be interesting just to do a story about the town and leave Michael Myers as a presence that think, doesn't uh, need to kill people, but we're, it's not about him. I, I like your idea, but I think keep the original film also out of canon. Well, I said like it, the, it's the, all the original, vague backstories. The, the original film was like based on like some old crime that had happened in Haddonfield like years before. Well, that's what I mean. Like, like the, in the sixties, the or something. kills, and, the yeah. kills can be. It's like in the Usual Suspects. Like there was one murder, and that was dramatized incorrectly in John Carpenter's film. That it's sort like, of thing. It, well, I wouldn't make it a film within a film. I think that's a little cheesy. But right. like, if you look at the Usual Suspects, you look at the ending of the Usual Suspects. It can't all be a lie. Some of it mm. has to connect to reality. Because otherwise they could say that's bullshit. I know that didn't happen. Yeah. So like this crime occurred. Okay. Well, I need to incorporate that into the narrative. So certain things from the original movie did happen. Uh-huh. But Laurie Strode is a fic- is a fictional creation. Or if mm. she was a real person, that wasn't her. Okay. You know, it's just what we've heard. Mm. You know, I-, I heard the cult of Thorn was behind it. Oh, <laughs> shut up! I- you shut your mouth. <laughs> I heard Michael Myers drains the blood of his victims. I heard Michael Myers cuts their heads off. I heard he's a giant chicken. Um, Maybe not the giant chicken. That's that's an Animaniacs reference. <laughs> Let's go to another letter, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, hello, BNW. This is from Name Redacted. By the okay. Way. Uh, hello, BNW. In honor of Portrait of a Lady on Fire coming out this week, I was wondering if you could speak about lesbian films of the past decade and your thoughts on them. Pretty much an excuse to hear your take, male viewpoint, on some films that I consider to be the best of the decade. Are they really that great, or do I have my rose-tinted lesbian glasses on? Uh, (laughs) Furthermore, thoughts on why they are consistently overlooked when it comes to awards season here in the States, namely the Oscars. For example, 
Going into last year, I knew The Favorite was seen as too niche. Uh, niche being lesbian, period piece, not with one, but two, but three women. In 2016, The Handmaiden could have been the first Korean movie to be nominated, and it won countless awards that year, but it was overlooked entirely at the Oscars. Bullshit, by yeah. the way. It's one of my favorite movies of the decade. Yeah, it was really good, uh, which was surprising given the fact that it was directed by Park Chan-wook, one of the best-known Korean directors here in the U.S. 2015 gave us Carol, which was nominated for Oscars, but was snubbed in the two biggest categories, Direction and Best Picture. Meanwhile, films such as Call Me By Your Name, Moonlight, Brokeback Mountain, each portraying gay male love stories, are recognized by the Academy with multiple nominations and big wins, all receiving nominations for Best Picture, Moonlight even winning. Not to say that I don't think these films aren't deserving in their nominations. They are. My point is more why we continue to see gay male love stories receive high praise, but lesbian movies are shut out and only talked about in much smaller circles. Mm -hmm. I've been extremely happy to see such quality lesbian films come out in the last few years, and I look forward to seeing more. I just love to see them actually be recognized for the beautiful stories they are finally telling and would like to see them be taken seriously and not just, quote, considered for awards, but thought of as actual contenders for wins. Yeah. I'm curious to hear the male viewpoint on these films, maybe to better understand that perspective. I find myself wondering if Portrait was not picked for uh, the French submission for Best International Film at the Oscars because there aren't any, really any men in the film. Uh, somebody counted, males have f collectively four lines of dialogue in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I tr I remember there's a guy, there's a guy who picks like, up a who picks up a parcel. Uh, there's a guy who rows a rowboat, mm. and there's a guy we never see. I don't even remember them having any dialogue. There's a guy at the end, and I think he just says like, "Hey, let's end." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. There's a scene at the end at like a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's all there is. You're right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, um, are people not interested in the story if it does not involve men at all? Is that why these films are getting overlooked and pushed to the side? Uh, lastly. Do you know about Oscar rules by chance? If an international film, if it isn't picked by its own country for best international film, can it still be considered for all other categories? Or is it completely out of the running? It's criminal if Claire Maton does not get nominated for cinematography. Um, P.S. I have a solution to the topic of what is cinema. And to me, it just came down to one thing, and it's really simple. Cinema is a really, really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that answers whether Marvel films are cinema or not dusts off hands. Huzzah! Yours truly, your friendly neighborhood lesbian. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot in that mm. email. Let's go backwards. Uh, what mm. is cinema? Um, some people like to say that there's a difference between movies and films. I think mm. I even might have espoused that once, and I'm embarrassed if mm. I did. No, we, we do use the words not entirely interchangeably I'll say that yeah, fair you enough know. but I think we should I think it's a mm. matter of they're all they're all the same art form whether they're good mm. or not is not necessarily legitimize them as a part of a medium or mm. not but in any case yeah people typically use cinema as movies we like mm. uh, when it comes to the Oscar rules the rules are and this is my understanding and I'm pretty sure I'm right um, every year for best foreign language film countries all over the world Submit. They all pick. They have like you know government bodies or artistic bodies that pick one film mm -hmm. to represent the country at the Academy Awards, even if there are multiple great films from that country. Mm -hmm. And the other rule is that they also have to be in a language that isn't English, yeah. which is increasingly arbitrary. And apparently, there are several great films this year that were denied entry into the Oscars because the country the they're from speak English. It's a foreign country, but because it's technically the name of the category is foreign language film, not it's, film from another country. But or, it should be film from another country. It should be best international film, but yeah, uh, and and even uh, we yeah. should just consider them all. But anyway, anyway um, a movie it's a, a, American Academy. It's in a, order to be yeah. submitted and and uh, approved and nominated for best foreign language film, you do have to be approved and submitted by your country, and there's only one movie per country. Yeah. However, 
you can also be nominated in any other category, whether or not mm. you were actually your country's pick. Okay. Um, and in fact, uh, some some movies actually end up being nominated in years like after they would have been submitted in the first place because it didn't come out in America until the year later. Yeah, I think yeah. that was the case with uh, Il Pastino hmm. uh, in the '90s, where it actually had come out in Italy the year before, but in America, for Best Picture. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, like, technically, there's nothing preventing Portrait of a Lady on Fire from being nominated in yeah. every category, but Best Foreign Language Film, yeah. provided it meets all of the other rules yeah. of submission, plays in a theater in Los Angeles and New York for a week, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as to why why are stories about gay men vaunted by the Academy and stories, uh, over stories, o- by over stories women, yeah. uh, about lesbians? Um, by the uh, way, you asked us for our male perspective. Yeah. Just for the record, this uh, is the male perspective. This, well, not just this is male perspective, yeah. but also you're you're a bi man. I'm a bi man, and I'm I am a heterosexual man. Mm. Um, and so, for whatever it's worth, that's where we're coming from. Okay, yeah. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, and there have been move recent moves in. Uh, in recent years to undo this, but the bulk of Academy voters are indeed men. Yep. Straight men for the most part. As far as we when, know. When a straight man sees a movie about two gay men. Okay. Are we generalizing again? I'm generalizing again. Okay. Now there are, this is not all gay men, but this is generally, this is generally speaking about straight men. There's going to be an element of gay panic. Uh, that's that's a thing. You see comedies about gay panic all the time. You mm-hmm. see gay panic out in the world all the time. I don't want to be thought of as gay. It's like uh, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping has a wonderful song about how he embraces his gay brethren, but I'm not gay. I'm not gay. Totally, totally not gay. Yeah. And the whole song devolves into this kind of screed about how he's definitely not gay, and it becomes more homophobic than it could ever possibly have been. It's hilarious. Brilliant song. Um, so when... An Academy, a straight male Academy voter votes for something like Brokeback Mountain. I think they're trying to prove a point that they are able to push through their own gay panic mm-hmm. and reward this romance. It's also worth noting uh, that there are people who went on record when mm. Brokeback Mountain was nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And it won several Academy Awards. Won Best Director, even. Uh, no. won Best Director, yeah. Best Adapted Screenplay, and I think Best Score, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um there were older members of the Academy. In fact, I think specifically Tony Curtis, mm. uh, was, who was alive at the time, said he didn't vote for it because he thought it besmirched the uh, uh, legacy of cowboys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so he was very open about his homophobia mm. or a, whatever you want to call it. He's, which, which he's is very which basically is, saying I'm anti-gay. Which is so weird for the star of Some Like It Hot and Spartacus. Right? You know, right? these, these like super gay movies. It's super weird, yeah. but. I do think, listen, we, it's fair to say, I, I'm not necessarily going to make those generalities. Right. Those are all regular concerns, and mm-hmm. those things are, we live in a frustratingly mm-hmm. homophobic world yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways. Even and, when it's getting better, we're still to, constantly being held back. But yeah, to, to for, further make my point. Yeah, uh, sorry, I thought you were done. So, no, just that that's why these stories about gay men are being rewarded, because they're kind of being vaunted by straight men. Like, they're, they're sort of giving their thumbs up to themselves, showing how progressive they can At be. At least they're men. Uh, uh, when those same straight men see a story about l- lesbians, I think they feel like they're kind of outside that. There's not something they can relate to. There's no gay panic. It's just these two women are operating without men. I don't understand that. <laughs> how can two women fall in love without a man nearby? Homophobia, homophobia, homophobia. Yeah. And as such, I think, yeah, there's this element of 
confusion over a lesbian love story from a straight male. Listen, that's entirely possible. Mm. Again, this is speaking for a very backward mindset that, of course, is not completely accurate, but this Mm. is kind of what I'm sensing. Here's... here's, Mm. I'm not going to look into... Uh, the the inner workings of everyone's mind at the academy. Mm. If I don't have the power, even if I did, I'd probably use it for different things. Mm. Um, what I do feel comfortable saying is that whatever the reason mm-hmm. why films, especially films about uh, uh, queer women, mm. uh, don't find respect from awards bodies like the academy, whatever the reason why, the fact that it keeps happening is proof that there's a problem that because there's, there's, some, something's definitely going on. There's either. way yeah. too many good films mm-hmm. being made regularly for that to make any sense mm-hmm. whatsoever. And we're talking about, and you mentioned a few, the, the handmaiden mm-hmm. uh, Carol was nominated for a ton, completely snubbed yeah. across um, the board. Shouldn't have been. Uh, the kids, are all, color, yeah, the kids get, are all right. Got a few nominations. It's not the best um, picture. Yeah. It, but that's another one. It was but also that's, overlooked though. But that's yeah. another one in which, uh, you know, but that's about, about a male, it, the male entering that relationship. Exactly. Yeah. So there is, it has the male perspective in there. Um, yeah, I, I, we have mm. to basically get over this bullshit. Yeah. There's way too many great films about the queer experience, and I hope mm. I'm using the word, and I'm allowed to use the word queer. Um, um, okay, um, for, I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I just, I, I don't want to use the wrong terminology, right. and if I am, I apologize. Mm. Um, there are way too many brilliant films being made about that experience that are being largely overlooked. I remember seeing those um, honest Academy Awards voters. Confessions that like Hollywood oh, Reporter or whatever does every it, year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like here's here's someone who actually is a member of a guild. But here's they what they voted for and why. But they they it's all anonymous. There's like yeah. one one producer, one actor, and like um, one writer and one yeah, director one, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, and y- when they start talking about why they vote for things, you realize that there are probably a lot of people in the academy who are really great and genuine and are trying to do wonderful things. There's also just some shitty people in there. Yeah. And I, you hear stuff that like saying like, listen, we gave Moonlight an award last year. We don't need to have another yeah, film about a similar topic win the award this year. I'm like, what if it's the best movie you ass? <laughs> what the fuck? So there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of people who vote for things for weird, stupid, selfish reasons. There's a lot of people who vote for things even without really knowing what goes into every part of it. Just because you're a member of the Academy doesn't mean you understand mm-hmm. truly what makes everyone's work yeah, brilliant. The, uh, c- you might know what mind. you like looks good, but yeah. you don't actually know what goes into all the cinematography necessarily, the, uh, that kind of thing. The bulk of the members of the Academy are not evenly spaced throughout the different disciplines that they're voting for. That's yeah. what you're saying. And... Uh, in fact, the bulk of Academy voters are actors. Yeah. And actors don't know how a camera works necessarily. Some, well, th- some do. Some they go do, on directing like, for That's and not their field. Themselves, that's yeah. not their field. So, like, it's not necessarily <laughs> you're getting... Not everyone is an expert in every category. Mm. Not everyone is approaching every category with the same perspective. Some mm. people are more interested in, it just was it technically good? I don't care about the story or the themes. I just want to know if it looked good. Or mm. some people only care about the story or themes and don't care if it looked good. And there's a million different reasons why people vote the way that they vote. But mm. when you put them all together and they consistently don't vote for a certain group of films about a certain group of people, mm. boy, does that yeah, raise a lot of fucking questions there's a word for that prejudice and yeah. uh yeah it's and that's what's happening in in 
That's all we can assume is happening with films about lesbians. They, they're welcome to prove us wrong. Yeah. Please. Please. Get, give Please that, prove me. You don't give, like us saying that? Prove us wrong. Give Best Picture to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That would be great. It's a foreign language film. It's about a lesbian romance. Men are hardly in it. Give the Oscar to that. Do it. I haven't... I haven't. I uh, dare you. I haven't made my Best mm. of the Year list yet, but there's a really good chance Portrait of a Lady on Fire is going to be number one. It's <laughs> certainly up there. It's, it's definitely in the top ten. It's certainly up there. Yeah. Anyway, um, I hope that helps. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of m- wonderful films. We just had a when we reviewed Portrait of Lady on Fire in our mm. last episode of Critically Acclaimed just came out the other day. Yeah, um, we specifically talked about how there have been sort of a a lack of great romantic movies this decade, like truly capital G mm. great romantic movies, and the vast majority of the ones we have are queer films. They're queer, yeah. That's just how it's shaken so out. Like it's going just interesting. Back, going back to the previous letter about. Uh, romantic movie tropes that I'm sick of. Heterosexuality just needs to <laughs> get it out of there. We don't need any more straight romance. We have a lot of them. Yeah. We're, we're sort of we're sort of overstocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First century of cinema, all straight romances. Let's do a couple more. Another direction. No more straight romances. Let's balance the scales a little bit. Okay, now, now let's have a century of nothing but queer romances. Yay! <laughs> all right, let's move on. I'm down. Okay, here's a letter from Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Hey, gents. I am a 25-year-old young man with two sisters. One is 27 and one is 23. Cool. You're the middle child. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't know for middle child. I'm the younger brother. I only have one sister. I don't know what it's like to be a child. I have an older child, brother actually. and he's like nine years older than me. It was oh, a okay. weird. It was, not an, it was not a typical setup, so oh, I don't okay. have that experience. Um, and, oh, this is uh, going to, we put out to our listeners, uh, we were trying to figure out like, one of our listeners asked, "What's like the great teen movie? Oh yeah, of uh, like the, the, the early two thousands generation, like around two thousand to two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what's the what's the best teen movie yeah. for that generation? And, and we posited High School Musical as one of them. So here's a letter about that. Oh, okay. um, I can tell you exactly who loved High School Musical. Almost every girl born between nineteen ninety six and two thousand one. Nice. Uh, my kid sister." 10 at the time, adored the movie and the sequels. I have her DVDs in my library to this day, in case she ever comes back for them. Uh, I, a mature 12-year-old at the time, and my 14-year-old sister, uh, despised the movie for how catchy the music was, and how I couldn't go more than a few minutes without hearing one of the catchy tunes out of my sister's mouth. There's a scene in Boyhood that perfectly captures that moment, when the family is staying with someone after Arquette's second marriage falls apart, and they're staying with a friend. One little girl is singing, we're all on this together, over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> that was 2006. <laughs> Sincerely, Jacob. Uh, okay, cool. so... We I, just missed that zeitgeist. We were just not, uh, we're, it was not... Movies were not made for us in our mm-hmm. age demographic. I didn't have the Disney Channel at the time. The first yeah. two were made for TV movies. And, just missed it. Just and as, missed and it. as we've mentioned before, there's a period uh, in every young person's life, usually when they're in college or freshly out of college, like early to mid-twenties, when you're so determined to prove yourself to be as adult as possible mm-hmm. that you... you reject all kids' stuff. You, yeah, you re- actively reject all kids' stuff. Unless, of course, it's like a superhero movie that feels kind of adolescent. No, even so, then, a lot of people will, will try to skip out. Like, people like fall out. I fell out of comic books yeah, when yeah, I was well, in college, that kind of thing. Well, I, went to, I just couldn't afford it. I, I stopped playing video games and stopped reading comic books in college because... A, college was hard and I needed to study. I didn't right. have time for it. Uh, B, I started dating, which takes up a lot more time than mm. you would be spending comic, you know, reading comics otherwise. I became a movie obsessive, so I was watching a lot of movies. Yeah. And, and yeah, I just couldn't afford it. I didn't have the finances to, to fund those habits anymore. And I never got back in. <laughs> like, video games kind of, but never not in any kind of meaningful way. It's all like casual games. I'm sorry, Luca is being adorable right now. Uh-huh. Our, our youngest cat. Uh, he has... Uh, his favorite toy is a... Remember that movie Keanu? 
mm-hmm. with Jordan Peele and uh, Keegan Michael Key. Mm-hmm. We have a little like Keanu. The cat Keanu is named for the kitten. Mm-hmm. A little Keanu doll, and he just loves fighting with it. Yeah, that's <laughs> he so puts cute. it in his mouth and then he kicks it with his hind legs. He was just he was going to town on Keanu for a second. It was adorable. I was a little distracted. The, the sequel to Keanu is going to be called Luca. <laughs> it's going to be about Luca. That would be adorable. This is Key and Peele's next film. That'd be great. Um, but that's cool. Thank you so much for letting us know. Like again, as we've mentioned a couple of times already in this podcast. We're getting older, and we're not necessarily... We don't necessarily have our fingers on the pulse of every generation that's younger than us. So it's really informative and helpful well, and then, to know what was popular and what meant a lot to who. Also, here, here's, here's a little bit of a, a caveat. Don't listen to me at all. <laughs> uh, because... Even when I was young and hip, I didn't have my finger on any kind of pulse. I liked really unpopular things at the time. Yeah. So claiming that I have some kind of deep abiding knowledge of my own generation is just BS. It's just lies. Yeah, it's lies. just just my own experience and what I've been able to extrapolate. But yeah. Um, I paid attention, but I was a dork, so whatever. Let's yeah. move on. Uh, here is a letter from... I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Shunak? Okay. Um... Hello, Whitney and William. I found you guys... Uh, oh, and this is called First Letter. Oh, so nice. So yeah, writing. I found you guys through Schmodown and have been a fan since then. I grew up in India, watching Bollywood movies and Bengali cinema, a lot of Satyajit Ray movies. Yay. I watched The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins as a kid. My main introduction to Hollywood movies through, was through big blockbusters like Jurassic Park and Independence Day as a teen, which got huge releases when they started dubbing movies for international audiences. Since then, I've watched a lot of movies dubbed in Hindi and later in English. Uh, most of the time, I realized how different the movies were once I watched their original versions. When I moved to the USA 10 years ago, I got to watch more Hollywood movies and other foreign language movies which were not readily available in India at the time. My first question for you guys is, when you watch foreign language movies, do you prefer them dubbed or subtitled? Luca, get off the counter. I'm dead serious. Get off the counter. Uh, let me go get him. I'll, I'll continue reading. Right. I'll, I'll break ranks. All right. My first question for you guys is, when you watch foreign language movies, do you prefer them dubbed or subtitled? In one of the previous episodes, you discussed how people do not want to disrupt their feelings about a movie they love. Do you... Fa- it, it, it broke down. Let, do you... Fa- <laughs> let me let me make, make my own phone work here. Um, uh, do you find movies... You loved before, but now you don't find them quite as appealing. Thank you for all the all you all you produce, and good luck on the schmodown and everything. Uh, the answer is subtitles every time. Um, yeah, uh, there's there's been a little bit of uh, controversy for the extreme film purist when it comes to dubbing versus subtitles, <clears throat> because no matter what you get, you are interrupting the fidelity of the picture. Yeah, one is going to be interrupted visually by the words appearing on screen. Your you eyes are going to be dar- to darting down, up and yeah. down. Uh, if it's dubbed, you're losing all the aural fidelity. You're losing the actors' performances. On the other hand, my my one counter argument for that though is that if you don't speak the original language, you're missing nuance of language anyway. Indeed. Uh, yeah. In fact, I really and sometimes subtitles are just fucking yeah. wrong. They're, they're, I know yeah, enough they're, they're French bad. to know when a French <laughs> subtitle is completely wrong. Yeah, and, and I understand it's sort of getting the intention of the scene, but you know, if, mm-hmm. if you know a little bit of, of a certain language, or if you're fluent, you know exactly how wrong a lot of those subti- those translations can be, because the translations have to fit in a little tiny bit. Yep, and also mm-hmm. they're sometimes making uh, allowances or concessions for cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Neil Gaiman, who did the uh, dubbed translation for the American version of Princess Mononoke, a classic uh, Hayao mm-hmm. Miyazaki animated film. Wait, Neil Gaiman translated that? Yes, he did. 
I don't know. He speaks Japanese. Uh, he, I don't know if he does or if he worked with a translator, but the whole point was he wanted to make sure that the uh, beauty of the language and the, 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 the dub felt beautiful. Okay. So they got a, a great author to do it. Mm. And he worked with a Japanese translator. And the story was about to get to that. Um, there's a scene in that movie. It's not a big scene. But it's a character who was played by Billy Bob Thornton in the American version. It's kind of a monk. And he's drinking some soup. The first time you meet him, he's drinking, he's eating some soup or drinking some soup. Mm-hmm. And in the original Japanese uh, uh, dialogue, mm-hmm. it translated to, the soup tastes like water. Okay. Which clearly is not good soup. Mm-hmm. But when the Neil Gaiman got the translation and talked to the translator, he said, is that bad? Okay. And the guy said, that's like the worst possible insult you can have about soup. Okay. So Neil Gaiman translated that to, this soup tastes like donkey piss. Because it's not reading the same way. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have the same cachet here as it did over there. So he translated it unliterally, but he tried to keep the sentiment. Yeah, that's, well, which is that's weird because the... there are also things that they arbitrarily changed mm-hmm. in that. Like, the girl who sees Ashitaka off when he leaves his village at the beginning of the of the uh, uh, American version mm-hmm. is his little sister. In the Japanese version, that was his fiance. <laughs> completely changes the context yeah, yeah, yeah. of the movie because he starts treating Princess Mononoke like her. All so right. it changes from a romantic relationship to a, a, a fraternal. F- familial, yeah. Yeah, totally change it. Really mm. weird shift. So, yeah, that, well, that's, that's my the point danger is that with translation in general. Yeah, if, there's if always a danger. If you've ever read, like, Rilke or Baudelaire, you know, poetry that original, poetry that started in, in another language, you have to, con- and the the translators usually apologize. Like, in any good volume of, of foreign language poetry that's translated in English is going to start with an apology, yeah. saying, I, I couldn't get it exactly right. Because what we thought we got as close as possible. Yeah, the do cadence you, is not yeah, going to be the same. The rhyme scheme is not going to be the same. Do you change it into, yeah, a rhyme scheme, or do you do it a little bit more literally? So you can, if you have sort of a primer between the two languages, you can kind of see it all. But you can't just sort of read through if you're not fluent in both languages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that translation is always going to be a little iffy, but I would rather have the actor's real voices, the actual actor's real performances over a dub, even in animation. Uh, in fact, in animation, they often animate to the actor's performances, and then if you put another performance on top of that, especially in another language that's going to have different word usage, it might not read quite the same. That's why uh, when you see like satires of anime, mm-hmm. there's usually a, like... I've seen like spoofs at, like uh, Speed Racer, the original Speed Racer cartoons, where a lot of the American actors are going like ha, 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 a lot because the English phrase used to translate whatever they said in Japanese takes a third less time. Yeah. So there, there's like a little bit where the characters on screen just sort of still moving their mouth yeah. and they can't really fill that with any English words. That's something Neil Gaiman said he was very cognizant of when he mm-hmm. trans. Not to keep going back to this, like this is the ultimate example. I've already mm-hmm. said they screwed them same things up, but. One of the things he said we, he thought was important for American audiences, because American audiences are not used to seeing dubbed films, was he wanted to make sure that there were as many, I think the word he used was mouth flaps, <laughs> in the actual dialogue as there were on screen. Mm. Now, an actual uh, anime, mm. uh, Japanese animation, they're a little less specific about that. Like, it's not the worst thing in the world if the lips don't entirely sync up. Mm. It's not considered like you ruined the movie and it's unprofessional. It's like sort of fine. The thing is, is that after sound started getting incorporated into cinema, they had to decide how they were going to market films overseas. Because it used to be they were silent. If you have to, you Mm. just switch out the card with the actual dialogue in it and then everything else will just translate fine because it's visual. Mm. Now we have audio. 
what do we do? And some of the early attempts to do this was they would film entirely different versions of the same films on different on the same sets. With different actors in many yeah, cases. Most famously, I think, is uh, Dracula. Because you can get like the DVD and it has the English language Dracula and the Spanish language Dracula. Mm-hmm. And they're slightly different films. <laughs> Arguably, the Spanish <laughs> language one is even better. Yeah. Um, but uh, very quickly, they realized that we could just record the audios separately. So mm. a lot of other countries started getting this big influx of movies from America that they would just dub. Mm-hmm. And one that's one of the reasons why in a lot of other countries, when they started getting their own movies, having accurate dubs weren't ne- wasn't necessarily a priority. And so a lot of movies that were being made in places like Hong Kong or Italy, uh, they would have people from all over the world speaking all different kinds of accents. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. They weren't yeah. recording sound. <laughs> They were just going to dub it over afterwards anyway, because no one cared. If you watch Italian movies from the 60s in particular, like Fellini and Visconti even shot this way. Yeah, they would shoot without sound. They would even... And they'd come and have the actors dub their own dialogue, making for this weird sort of disconnect between the visual and the voice. It's kind of dreamlike, which, yeah. which Fellini really liked, so he did that kind of intentionally. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Visconti did a film called The Leopard, and uh, Burt Lancaster is the lead of that, and uh, I think Alan Delon is the second lead, and they just spoke their own languages. Yeah. And then had them dub alternately uh, whatever, you know, they released it in Italy, they're both dubbed in Italian. Right. But my point is, is that overseas, dubbing was considered really, really common. Yeah. A lot of people just got really used to it. In America, we got really sort of geocentric, and we only watched movies from our own country for the most part, at least until like the 50s and 60s, and even then it wasn't the norm. So we got kind of used to audio syncing up properly. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot more uh, cinephiles here in America who are super hardcore about wanting to get subtitles. You want to hear the way it originally sounded mm. and get the translation. And somewhere in the middle, we get as close as we can to just speaking the language yeah, and yeah. getting it fluently. Um, but my philosophy is this. Watch it however you can, man. Yeah. Like Some movies don't, well, don't exist anymore. Some movies don't have yeah, the original language track at all, and you just got the dubbing, and that's it. And well, that's if, what if you have to deal with, and it might be good anyway. If it's one of those rare cases where it's only available in a dubbed version. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for the longest time, there was a... You can get it on Blu-ray now, I think, but I saw a Japanese film called Zedam, uh, which was a space alien science fiction monster fight kind of movie. It's a fun film. Yeah. Uh, but for the longest time, the only way you could get it in America was on a dubbed VHS. And I watched it that way. I had a good time. Yeah. I like Zeram. Now you can get it in Japanese, and that's yeah. the preferable version. But if you could only get it that VHS, I'm not going to tell you not to watch it. Well, I remember when I started getting into Hong Kong cinema in mm. the early 2000s, and this was before most of those films had a proper, decent American release. Um, and even then, what the, one of the issues we found is that a lot of the older films weren't well-preserved. Mm. If there was an original audio track, it is long since gone. Some of them only have the English audio track left. Yeah. They don't even have the original uh, uh, Cantonese audio track, or Mandarin mm-hmm. in some cases. But um, Also, some of them, the print is gone. All we have is the pan and scan version. That's all that exists, even mm-hmm. though the movie is a classic. It's what we got. Yeah. You see the movie however you can. A lot of times, the movies that would come out in America would be uh, all-region DVDs that were made by cheap companies who just sort of literally translated the Chinese uh, uh, language. Hmm. And as a result, half of it was a little hard to follow <laughs> just because they weren't really concerned with nuance. They were just trying to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you do what you can. You get what you can get. We're living in a time now where subtitles are more readily available and there's easier to get access to a lot of uh, uh, cinema from other cultures and other countries. Um, there are far fewer dubbed movies in America, mm-hmm. just on average, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, except in animation, where dubbing is quite common. And some people swear by the dubbed versions because they find it just easier to follow and they think that a lot of the actors are doing a very good job and some of them are. Mm-hmm. Some people swear by the subs. And that's what I do. Right. But I'll watch whatever I can get. All right. I'm sorry. That's, that's a lo- it's a longer, weirder conversation I think mm-hmm. most people realize. Right. But yeah. Um, we have time for one more? One more. Okay. Um, Last one. Here's one from Jack. Hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. Uh, hi, WNW. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to copy and paste an email I sent to the old Cancel Too Soon email address <laughs> back in September since you said you may or may not revisit that one account, and selfish as it might be, I want my email read. Well, we're going to read it. Yay! I'm um, glad we're doing this. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll have another Letters podcast where we go back to and get all of those now completely ancient Cancel Too Soon letters. No, nope, we're going to keep those, doing but, it. Yeah. Uh, I first discovered your show back in June. I was on a bit of a Tarzan kick, and I found two unrelated one-season Tarzan TV series, Tarzan the Epic Adventures, 1996, which, while I never got a DVD release that I know of, is entirely available on YouTube, and 2003's Tarzan. While looking for more information on the latter, I happened upon Council Too Soon. Now, while a normal person would just have listened to that episode to decide if they liked your podcast or not, I've never been one to start a series in the middle, so I listened to the whole thing. Damn, that was like a hundred episodes. Yeah. All right. Three months later, I'm finally caught. Oh my goodness, you really marathoned. Uh, well, I'm really well, glad you're reading your yeah. email. <laughs> uh, three months later, I'm finally caught up, and I gotta say, this was a fantastic decision on my part. Oh, Yay. thank you. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't a mistake. Thank you. Uh, your in-depth analysis, your camaraderie, and your tangents all make Cancel Too Soon a delight to listen to, and I can't wait to hear more. Well, it is rare that you review a series I've actually seen. Well, I mean, that's not what we do. <laughs> Um, uh, it's not totally unheard of. I loved watching Journeyman when it was on TV, and I had watched Voyagers recently enough that I remembered everything you guys talked about. Voyagers is a good show. Really was. Um, my favorite episode so far might be, Where's Rodney? <laughs> <laughs> and for no other reason than your ideas for future problems to befall Smodney had me laughing so hard that I was having trouble breathing. If you don't remember that show, um... Where's Rodney was a one-episode sitcom about a 12-year-old boy who had 12-year-old boy suburban boy problems. He lived with an older sister. He had trouble at school. And he had had a crush on a girl. Uh, And he had a really bizarre superpower. When he was alone and needed help, he could summon the actual Rodney Dangerfield from wherever he was. He would suddenly be teleported. He'd be teleported into this boy's bedroom, and Rodney would give him advice. Rodney Dangerfield played himself. And then when the advice was doled out, Rodney Dangerfield would teleport back. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah, I, um, we have uh, no idea what they were thinking or mm. why or, like, why you couldn't just cast Rodney Dangerfield mm. as, like, an, a, a disrespected yeah. dad. No, you came up with the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> that show is bizarrely it's fascinating. So it's only one episode. You can probably... Yeah, it's one of those things you probably find on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's a um, lot of fun, though. We, did a, we had a fun episode yeah. about it. Uh, if there's one series I'd love for you guys to review, it would be 2010's The Good Guys. It was a buddy cop show from Matt Nix, the creator of Burn Notice. Okay. It aired on Fox. It starred Bradley Whitford as Dan Stark, a detective who's stuck in the 80s, and Colin Hanks as Jack Bailey, a by-the-book officer who learns that Dan's ways have some merit after all. Uh, to this day, the series remains one of my all-time favorites, and I'm so mm. glad to see it first run. It's hilarious, highly quotable, villain of the week always has some fun quirk to surprising number of guest stars, and the soundtrack, oh man, the soundtrack. <laughs> Music budget, budget on the show must have been insane. We were talking about that with uh, 
with Deadly Class as yeah. well. It has Sometimes an awesome soundtrack. They licensed a lot of music for that show. Um, every episode has at least a couple killer 80s tunes, which fortunately are still included fortunately, are still included in the home release. Unfortunately, it struggled with low ratings for its entire run, although that probably wasn't helped by Fox putting it on hiatus halfway through the season and moving it around the week more than once. (sighs) Although that didn't stop me from seeing every episode. Now the series is 21-hour episodes, so it might take you a while to get to. Mm -hmm. We we always cringe a little bit when we realize we're looking at like 18, 20, 25 hours of content. We we try to do them sometimes because we don't want to end up with like, those are the only shows we have left to review and we have to make a monthly podcast, but... It's hard to fit in a 20-hour TV show every week. In a, in a week. And yeah. g- given all the other things we have to do. And we, we've had enough <clears throat> delays as is. So yeah, we don't so want to We're trying to stay on top of things. Um, it's still available on iTunes and Amazon Video. I'm waiting for a proper DVD or Blu-ray release that will probably never come. Probably not. The one you can currently find on Amazon is a cheapo print-on-demand copy. Signed, Jack. Well, I'm glad we could finally get to your later, Jack. I, I am very, very glad. I am very, very flattered that not only did you embark on the journey to listen to all of our Cancel Too Soon podcasts, but that you made it all the way. <laughs> so thank you. That means a lot to us. Mm. That means we're doing an okay job. And um, seriously, thank you. Luca, get out of there. Oh, Luca? Well, why, why don't you tell uh, tell our dear listeners uh, where they can find us while, you where they can, while I move the cat. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we are uh, William Bibiani and Whitney Seibold. We are the critically acclaimed network. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do leave us a review wherever you find us. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. If you can afford to pitch in, we'll happily give you some exclusive content in return over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Um, we are on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We'll be back next week with more letters and stick around because coming up on the critically acclaimed network, we have uh, our episode of the iron list where we're going to have our picks for the best Christmas movies ever. We're also going to have uh, a new episode of Cancel Too Soon in the next couple of days, in which we look at the acting debut of mm. Emma Stone when she starred in The New Partridge Family, which people do not talk about. No. And it's possible there's a reason. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> we haven't sat down. It's not even talked about as much as New Monkeys. No. And nobody remembers New Monkeys. Uh, over at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we got some cool stuff coming over the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. Whitney, are gonna, Whitney and I are going to be reviewing not one, but two made-for-TV remakes of Miracle on 34th Street. Mm-hmm. There were actually three of them, but the one from 1959 is like almost completely unavailable. We can't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably just do the two. Luca, thank <laughs> you for moving your bowl. I get it. Uh-huh. Thank you. I'm hungry. I get it. Thank you. I'll feed you in a second. Um, and uh, and there's a bunch of other cool stuff over there as well. So thank you, mm-hmm. everybody, for listening. We didn't forget anything. Uh, no, I think that's everything. All right. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Now let's get Lucas some lunch. Yeah.